Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing we say should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so if you are ready to proceed with a little listener discretion, then by all means, buckle up, buttercup, and let's get into it. So I'm going to do that. You cool? You ready? Do the thing. Do we have any more catching up to do? Man. I mean, we probably do, but I, you know. Probably do. Let's do this podcast that we've been. Let's do this podcast. Yeah, let's do this thing. You know what? We're going to make a podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie. Um... I have a morbid fascination with the foibles of human nature and how that intersects with law enforcement. Uh, and that is the extent of my qualifications to be doing this podcast. But my co-host, she's- Oh, stop it. I'm other Steph. I get to be <laughs> the, um, what, the feisty sidekick, the little, the legal nerd <laughs> that, uh, the resident legal expert. <laughs> that pops, I believe. Nah. I mean, I'm a dabbler. I'm a dabbler. <laughs> No, I, I am. I'm a lawyer. You dabbled for enough years to become a lawyer, like from the school. For so sure. I'm just saying. But I am definitely, like you, interested in the odds and ends of the legal history of the great state of Texas. And mm-hmm. so I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> if you are a regular listener of this show, thank you. And thank you for your patience. Um, Steph and I are just, we're busy. Everybody's busy. Life is, uh, it has sort of recalibrated itself around a persistent state of unprecedented times for the last year or so. Um, so you know what? We're going to do the show uh, not consistently, and that's just reality now. We are sporadic podcasters, and I just yeah. realized that I called myself a feisty sidekick. You certainly what did. Am I doing? I'm not cutting it out. I'm not <laughs> cutting it out, you feisty feistiness, you. <laughs> what am I, 12? Uh, I'm feisty. <laughs> Feisty. I introduced myself as feisty. That's I'm not feisty weird. spice. <laughs> yeah, you are. Um, so yeah, it's been a hot minute. We're in the middle of a three part series about Waco. And like, we had all these ambitions that we were going to like, bam, 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 like, knock these episodes out. And then reality said, that's adorable. You made plans. That's right. <laughs> we mocked the. <laughs> yeah. And so. I was thinking about it, like we could kick ourselves in the head and try and force ourselves to like make podcasts on a regular schedule, but you and I are both painfully perfectionist in our own way. And I think if we rushed episodes into recording, we would not be happy with the end result. That's true. And it would be a hardship for you because you'd have to do so much more editing to try mm-hmm. to like find any any nuggets worth salvaging <laughs> if we're not prepared and if our right. heart's not in it and if we're not engaged in the mm-hmm. subject matter and if we haven't had time to like make our notes and look things over so right we'll just exactly. have to do it the way we got to do it and yeah. you know we we want these episodes to be uh, these stories to be perfect as perfect as we can get them. Everything is imperfect. Imperfection is unattainable. I know, I know, I know. Don't at me. I still want to try. <laughs> and so, um, uh, 
you know, we want to we want to make each episode as good as we possibly can. And so we're not going to rush it. We're going to get it out to you when we can. And we really appreciate your forbearance and and your sticking with us. The five of you who have stuck with us. We love you lots and lots. Uh, I would like to take this moment to mention uh, we we got an email. We don't yes, get we, do. we we don't get emails from listeners. This made oh my god! Uh, did this make your whole day? It made my whole day. Made the day absolutely. Uh, uh. so um, Michelle, you sent us an email. You had a lot of really cool thoughts to share about the sort of the the money pit that is uh, Texas traffic tickets and having to pay fines and and that whole thing and and you had some really uh this was in reference to the sandra bland episode Mm -hmm. that we did about how sandra bland found herself just spiraling down into the into that sort of protection racket money pit of traffic violations and fines and fees and jail time and all of that mess um so michelle had some really cool insight to share on that thank you Mm -hmm. so much michelle i'm gonna email you back I wanted to wait until I could sit here with my friend on a microphone and just gush about how much we love you for a second. We did. And we appreciate the perspectives. If you have any um, thoughts or feedback or questions about the episodes, please let us know because we are happy to engage with you on them and, uh, you know, even follow up in the show. So, yeah, absolutely. If you have a question, we will answer it. If uh, to the best of our ability, even if that That's answer right. is, I don't know, <laughs> but we'll do the best we can. <laughs> Gonna circle back. So anyway, thank you, Michelle, uh, for your fabulous note. And, uh, and yeah, anybody else you want to send us an email, we'll talk about it. It'll be great. Right. And thanks for, oh. uh, thanks for listening, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Rochelle. And thank you. Thank you to our love. We have, we have patrons on the Patreon. Thank you to you guys. I'm so sorry that we are so far behind on our Law and Order SVU, uh, rewatch from the beginning. We will, I promise, get back into that. Um, by the way, if you become one of our patrons on Patreon, you get to listen to us bullshit about Law and Order. I've never actually watched any episode of Law and Order ever, and Steph's watched all of it. So. Uh, that's, we're experience, we're re-experiencing Law and Order from the beginning together. It's a good time. That's right. So there's that. Um, and I realize that I am procrastinating <laughs> jumping into this episode. <laughs> so, I mean, so we remember, like, I guess, uh, where where we left our... When, you know, where last we left our heroes? No. Uh, no, our no. characters. Okay, so we've already done, if you're just picking us up on this chapter three of the Waco story, go back and listen to chapters one and two and then come back to this. Um, so previously on Waco... Um, uh, we had the Branch Davidians had settled on Mount Carmel on a big piece, a big, bleh, 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 bleh. I'll come in again. A Do big it. piece of land outside of Waco, Texas. Over the decades, they evolved from a pacifist Christian sect preparing to be raptured in the inevitable apocalypse into a heavily armed army of God cult of personality centered around one man, David Koresh. That's right. On, uh, can you tell that I wrote this out ahead of time? <laughs> Uh, on February 28th, 1993, the ATF raided the compound at Mount Carmel to serve a warrant to Koresh. Um, there was some concern about weapons and firearms. There was a massive firefight, so perhaps that concern was warranted. Federal agents and Branch Davidians were killed. It was a hot, tragic mess and an utter failure of a police action. The ATF pulled back, the FBI rolled in, kicking off the longest standoff in law enforcement history in the United States, 51 days yes. of standoff between a religious cult and a compound and the, the FBI gathered outside. 
So that's a lot. That is a lot. So we're going to have to proceed forward. Uh, normally, you know, the format of the show is I tell a, a melodramatic story and then Steph slaps some realism on it uh, with some lawyer perspective. But this is just this is just a lot of information. So we're just going to kind of march forward through the timeline. Mm-hmm. That work for you? Yeah, this was that um, worked for me. I mean, this was such a singular, significant uh, police action, the standoff involved, uh, the FBI took over, as you're about to mm-hmm. describe. But um, the trigger of all of these events was the ATF attempting to mm-hmm. um, search the property and right. arrest David Koresh. And uh, really quickly, I just wanted to um, follow up on something we talked about in the last podcast. Oh, right, right, yeah. I felt Go like ahead. I gave a little bit of a short shrift to your question about... If David Koresh had been apprehended alive and mm-hmm. um, in response to the bigamy charges mm-hmm. or the, the, you know, the, the marriages to multiple young um, girls on the compound, would he have been able to raise a defense like, but this is my religion. Right. And I was okay. like, yeah, no, 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 because the laws of bigamy, the state has an interest in regulating marriage. And I kind of poo pooed it. And no, um, I did not feel poo pooed in the moment. <laughs> okay, okay. Just so you know. Well, I just. But if you have more information, I welcome it. Absolutely. I just wanted to circle back on the idea that that when the government um, passes a law that's applicable to everybody, um, mm-hmm. even though somebody might feel burdened in their free exercise of religion, that doesn't necessarily make the law unconstitutional or mean that you can right. raise a defense. But some states apparently um, have certain religious defenses that can be raised to certain crimes. And one in particular I've read about was, you know, the use of um, ritual like peyote or something. Um, okay. If that is part of your practice of religion, mm-hmm. there are times you can raise that as an affirmative defense to a criminal okay. charge based on, you know, your drug violation. But to my mm-hmm. knowledge, there is no similar defense that can be raised to the charge of bigamy. So, okay. So there's the all the way back. So the the government can pass laws that could feel like a burden to a right, uh-huh. but remember mm-hmm. our rights are not absolute, and there are right. certain tests to determine if laws are constitutional. And laws against bigamy, as you know, other generally applicable laws have mm-hmm. been generally upheld. So, well, there you go. There you go. Okay, cool. I, I think the government sounds like they're willing to be flexible on some things, uh, and. Uh, on endangering children less so. Maybe, yeah. Maybe Sounds we can like uh, all agree that the government has a very significant interest in the protection of its citizens and especially the most vulnerable of them. So we like to hope. Yeah. <laughs> like that is the ideal. Now, there may be some argument and disagreement as to what qualifies one to be the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. but that's a different show. <laughs> okay. Um, so getting to like setting the stage. Um, the compound at Mount Carmel is on this big piece of land. It's very rural out there. Um, this is not like a suburban street. There's not a lot of bystanders. They wanted space. They had space. But now they're all trapped in the main buildings of the compound. And the FBI uh, has quickly, like, this this whole ATF raid happened the morning of February 28th. By dinner time that night, uh, the FBI was setting up a perimeter with sniper posts around the main buildings of the Mount Carmel compound. Um, so 
under the one thing that I really want to keep in mind the whole time that we're talking about this is these the, the Branch Davidians, the core tenant, ten, tenet, the core of their belief um, is that they are preparing for the end of days and that they are in a struggle of good versus evil, them being good and evil being the entire outside world. And that the entire outside world, which they referred to as Babylon, is arrayed against them and wants to come and fight them and kill them and take their messiah, David Koresh, away. And so the longer this standoff goes and the more it feels like an enormous threat is just circling around them, the more it plays into their beliefs and the more it encourages that, that ferocity of belief. And so they get really entrenched. You know, the, the big question that a lot of people have is why didn't they just come out? Right. This is why this, I believe this is why is because the whole situation a hundred percent played into the narrative that David Koresh had drilled into their heads. Well, I think that's right. I think the um, the FBI's main goal was mm-hmm. to negotiate a surrender, a peaceful mm-hmm. surrender, exactly for the arrest of David Koresh and for mm-hmm. those involved in that firefight, because they were, you know, the the government was there to serve a warrant and right. arrest David Koresh, and mm-hmm. he definitely, it seems, um, was unwilling to come out oh, and yeah. was unwilling to be arrested. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the aim of the government in that standoff, because there was an unknown number of people to them, right. unknown number of children to them, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, the, the makings for a tinder keg, they knew right. that there were, you know, weapons and ammunition and that these people um, on the other side of this compound were already willing to use them. There was already yes. a firefight. They had already shown they were willing and able. That's right. Yeah. At the time, we know, because we have the power of retrospect, um, that there's about 80-something people in there. And 30-ish, maybe a little more than 30 of them, are children under the age of 15. So this is this is a women and children situation. There are a lot of vulnerable people inside this compound. And maybe a lot of people who shouldn't be inside this compound. So... Moving forward, and our first, we really are just going to take this in chunks of time. So the first chunk of time, let's look at the first week that they're there. That's February 28th, 1993 through March 7th, 1993. Um, I've got like some quick bullet points of just like stuff that's documented as events that occurred. Do you want me to just run through those? Sure. And then you can fill in any like, because I know you found like DOJ documentation and stuff so about this. I did. I spent a lot of my mm-hmm. time looking at the um the reflection the investigations there mm-hmm. was so many um different entities that needed to thoroughly look at what happened and how it happened and reconstruct um the mm-hmm. the decisions that were made so i think that would be a great approach okay so that so then we'll look at that time frame so February 28th, the raid happened. Everybody, basically battle lines have been drawn. The FBI is forming their perimeter around the place. Um, David Koresh has a phone, so he starts calling news stations. He calls into CNN. Mr. Koresh, I don't think we had an opportunity to hear your description of the gunfire this morning. So what happened was I knew that they were coming. You know, I knew they were coming before they knew they were coming. What will it take to uh, bring it to a peaceful conclusion 
if they'll show me and show the world what the seven seals are and where they're at in the prophecies, then I'll be satisfied. And then we'll all come out to you. So the FBI cut his phone line <laughs> and they ran through another like manual phone line across the ground to him. Uh, that is just a direct line to negotiators. And that's an important thing to keep in mind throughout this entire thing. There are two FBI teams on the ground there. There's negotiators and there's tactical. Yes. And these two teams do not agree all the time on how to approach the situation. Very different philosophies going on here. That's right. So um, David Koresh, you know, they start talking with the negotiators and he tells them that if he's allowed to preach on the radio, he will surrender and they'll and he'll come out. So they let him record a sermon and they get that sermon over to Dallas Radio KRLD to play on the radio. And it's like it's it's literally it's local radio. It's Dallas radio. <laughs> this is small audience, but whatever makes him happy. Right. And it's a 58 minute sermon. And this was not his best work. Uh, even according to the ever-present, unavoidable-for-comment David Thibodeau, the <laughs> former Branch Davidian, he said they listened to it and they were like, really? This is the message you went with, huh? Okay. Because it was like not his not his best uh, performance of a sermon, according to him. Um, it was definitely really arcane and hard to understand if you were not a member of the cult. Like... They had their own cult speak. You know, they would talk about Babylon and you would talk about like the chosen and the seven seals. And there's, there was a lot of assumption that the listener was a follower already and already knew like the callbacks and, you know, the, the call and response that he would pepper his sermons with. Uh, so it was a complete disaster as a broadcast. It did not help his cause. Um, they did re- release some Branch Davidians, uh, two elderly women and several children. And I, I have a question about the elderly women. Uh, real quick, I'm going to interrupt myself. Did you see that those women were arrested and charged with first degree murder? So they were part of the... So they were the first round to be released. Right. And so I saw, I found the list of the, um, I think, was it 11 people that were mm-hmm. um, charged? Okay. Right. And so, yes, among the charges, there were murder charges because of the mm-hmm. um, the firefight with the ATF right. agents. But these two were not actually a part of that group of 11. Okay. Um, because it's actually mentioned, I saw in some documents, that those charges were inexplicably brought yeah. against these women and then dropped. And it is it is believed that those charges, those women were charged with first-degree murder as a cudgel against David Koresh. Oh, Like, okay. you come out or these two women are going to go down for this entire incident. <laughs> These two little old grandmas that you just let out oh, are wow. going to go to jail for what you did. Like they were trying to do that. Right. Uh, as part of a bargaining chip. Okay. So it, it, it didn't fly because the point is that David Koresh is trying to save himself here. Yes. And so I think that's interesting. And I think it also uh, connects with the fact that there were multiple law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Like by the time the um, FBI assumed you know, um, control over the operation, I think there were something about... Over the 50 days, there were 700 law enforcement personnel. Mm. There were representatives from multiple agencies, state and federal uh. law enforcement. So imagine the logistical nightmare of... Imagine the jurisdictional dick swinging and- <laughs> that was just going on around this place. You don't have to say it. I'll say no, it. <laughs> and just the, the operation. So you definitely had, you know, even be- within the FBI, there was the tactical mm-hmm. and right. the negotiation units that 
didn't always see eye to eye. We'll also imagine between, you know, you had Texas National Guard individuals. The Texas Rangers wanted part of it. You had, you know, you, yeah, you had local law enforcement, you had the FBI, you had the Mm -hmm. ATF who handed off this operation. So I can imagine that there were definitely um, pieces of strat there were strategies that i don't think mm-hmm. were completely vetted at all times yeah. while yeah. things were ongoing totally in the moment mm-hmm. so those those poor ladies uh they the charges were dropped and they eventually went free um so they realized that the children that were released were not all of the children that were on the property because uh, that happened that came out in a conversation over the phone with david koresh um and he told them that all the children that were still in the compound were his biological children. Because, if you will recall, uh, David Koresh had this notion that uh, he had he carried the seed of God. And so any of his biological children that he had to have with all of these women, every woman in the compound, like you do, um, were going to become the uh, basically the royal post-apocalyptic family and they would stand as judge and jury over the rest of the world during the end times and uh decide who gets raptured and who jo- i'm not really sure what their job was going to be but anyway they are his special babies and so he was not about to hand them over to babylon also giving them up would just be giving up his entire theology of being a messiah also it would be coincidentally giving up his most compelling hostages in this situation so there's that to keep in mind not not all of his crazy was crazy. Some of his crazy was crazy like a fox. And yes, crazy. and definitely throughout the investigative materials, the children are mm-hmm. such a focal point for yeah. every agency through all the way up to the attorney general. The um, focus is we need to figure out where these children are, figure out how to um, safely get them out of mm-hmm. the compound and out of this situation. And so... Right. You're right. Um, somebody might might think of how important the children are to the mm-hmm. uh, resolution of the entire situation. And both sides are using the children as bargaining chips throughout this. Um, David Koresh is constantly back and forth uh, in negotiations uh, with the FBI. They're, both sides are frustrating each other a lot. Um, and because Koresh can't seem to help himself, he spends a lot of his phone time with the FBI preaching um, to the point where they start referring to it as, quote, Bible babble. <laughs> Whereas like, okay, well, he's going off on Bible babble again. I guess we'll wait till he calms down and then maybe we can start negotiating again. Um, but they negotiate for things like food and milk hmm. to be delivered. And the FBI is like, we're not sending milk in until you send out more kids uh, and stuff like So there, there's a lot of, you know, we will not send you things until you send more children out of danger and we're not going to send more children out of danger until you send us more food and stuff like that. I, I did find one mention, and I don't know if you found anything about this. Uh, the FBI hid listening devices in with the cartons of milk. Ah, okay. So in so that's how they got listening devices inside the compound. Look at that. So I read a number of uh, transcripts that were taken from the listening devices because at times mm-hmm. only portions of conversations Right. You know, could be heard. Mm -hmm. So it's also during this first week that the FBI realizes that the Branch Davidians have probably a year's supply of food because they have been doomsday prepping. I mean, it's mainly MREs. It's not gourmet, but they're not going to starve them out anytime soon. Um, And they start to get, you know, as they start to familiarize themselves with 
the tone and tenor of the Branch Davidians and David Koresh himself. They're not just talking to David Koresh. They also talk to Steve Schneider, which is his second in command as well. Um, they start to get a really strong feeling that any direct assault on the compound would lead to a mass suicide event inside. So that's what leads to them really trying to meticulously be patient and work on getting the children out. So that's what, that's first week. Do you have anything um, cool that you found? Well, sure. So informing those conclusions, there was an army of Mm -hmm. experts so there was a team of the the hostage negotiators. Mm-hmm. Um, but additionally, I found it was a stunning number of um, forensic psychologists, of religious and theological experts. Mm-hmm. They had medical experts and cult experts who mm-hmm. were providing their analysis and their opinions to help guide the negotiations. Because right. this is completely completely new nobody's ever had to do this as law enforcement before so they're writing the playbook for dealing with a cult in a compound standoff situation as it's happening and so i did read about how during the negotiations there would be a primary negotiator and then there would be Mm -hmm. a second negotiator who is not only taking notes but Mm -hmm. passing kind of prompts so okay and giving kind of feedback to the primary negotiator who was doing the talking so that they huh. could constantly be updating, you know, whoever was going to take over the role of negotiating, mm-hmm. they would have an immediate transfer, I guess, of information. Mm-hmm. And so it would kind of develop this body of this is how the negotiations are going. And wow. so, yeah, so this was... Um, <laughs> That's complicated. It was really, an, it's a pretty mm-hmm. intense situation, I yeah. guess, too, because all of them, they were trying to placate David Crash and they were trying to get Mm -hmm. have these good faith efforts of, you know, we're willing to negotiate, but you need to Mm -hmm. release some people because the FBI's view, I think they're um, they were driven by this idea that we're going to negotiate a peace and then they're going to surrender. And they kept promising they are going to peacefully surrender. And then, of course, it keeps being stymied. They kept kicking that can down the road. Absolutely. A little. And, you know, David Crash kept making promises and then Mm -hmm. he wouldn't fulfill them. And so they Mm -hmm. were constantly monitoring and getting the advice from experts as to the state of mind of this person that they are trying to negotiate down from this standoff. Exactly. Um, So that was their relationship moving into... The second, well, I mean, I say week. This is actually like a 10 day span. Uh, y'all, I'm, this is a, I've, I've got a cheat sheet here, basically. Uh, there is a PBS website and I will put it with the rest of our sources in the notes on this episode that has a really nice timeline of just chunks of time broken down. So we're following that. Um, so we're looking at March 8th through March 18th. Um, and so quick rundown, um, the FBI was like, we need proof of life and welfare of these children. So in a good faith gesture, we're going to send you a video camera. You take a video of everybody so we can, so we can make sure the kids are okay. And also like subtext so that we can get a head count on you. So we know who's in there. Um, but the branch of aren't stupid. The tape was almost entirely children. And it was, it was a video that, that did show that the kids were alive and well. Uh, so that was nice. Um, it is now also obvious based on that video that everybody inside is a willing hostage. They're not being held under duress. 
they are, Koresh repeatedly makes the point, they're free to go anytime, but they want to stay. It really felt, I've seen clips of the video, it really felt like him flexing. Like, I'm saying they, they want to stay, but what he's really saying is I have complete control over these people. So you really do have to deal with me. So I think that's interesting. I did read in Mm -hmm. um, some of the material reflecting on the standoff that there were um, there was some consideration of whether or not that tape could be released. But Mm -hmm. it was determined that it would generate too much sympathy. It might actually, you know, be compelling to people who are watching it. And I mean, so the the negotiations and the the FBI's perspective mm-hmm. i mean they were really getting a lot of input on the the tactics and the strategies that mm-hmm. would be helpful but they were really trying to understand the personalities of the followers of right. whether or not you know david koresh had any disorders but also were mm-hmm. these followers unlikely to commit suicide i know you mentioned that mm-hmm. as well as like yeah. what was the level of threat they were going to pose to the children to themselves mm-hmm. and to law enforcement. And I think that drove right. so much of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they start using as a negotiation tactic, they start cutting off the electricity. And so this is March in Waco, which is uh, North ish in Texas. So March in Waco is not, I mean, it's chilly in the springtime. Uh, and so um, every time they cut off the electricity, David Koresh should get on the phone and say that he would like to ha- not have the people freeze, please. So can we turn the electricity back on? Um, and FBI tactical was really behind the shutting off of the electricity. I found a quote um, that said that the FBI tactical team leader said that he wanted, quote, those inside the compound to experience the same wet and cold night as the tactical personnel outside. Never mind that a lot of the people inside are not trained law enforcement uh, and are maybe there under some kind of psychological duress and also their children. I have some disagreements with the way this was handled by law enforcement because I wasn't there. <laughs> but anyway. Well, and that's there were different driving or animating kind of um, approaches mm-hmm. that were going on. Right. And you know, the the FBI, I think, had this was employing this like aggressive patience, this, Mm -hmm. you know, we're gonna, we're gonna calm this down. And we're going to lure them to their right minds. And then tactical was like, we can't do this indefinitely. And they can, Mm -hmm. they're not just going to leave. They're not going to get uncomfortable and leave tomorrow. So Mm -hmm. we need to try to push this along. Right. Um, so this is where we really start to see the relationship between the negotiation team and the tactical team starting to fray because they, they start to diverge. Um, the tactical team starts lighting up the compound with mega bright lights at all hours of the night to, and it's, this is like Guantanamo Bay stuff. They start getting into like some enhanced interrogation techniques, like just disrupting your sleep with these harsh lights shining in through the windows. So the Branch Davidians responded by putting up plywood over the windows, but with holes cut in it. And so the the tactical team was like, ah, uh-uh, those holes, those are weapon ports. They are planning, they're barricading, and they're planning on, on countering our assault. And like, well, yes, <laughs> that is a thing. Um, all of this serves to agitate David Koresh and Steve Schneider on the inside. And so None of the negotiation phone calls are going well at all. Um, they are almost entirely David Koresh's 
preaching his quote-unquote Bible babble, um, which the negotiating teams start refusing to take those calls. If he once he starts doing it, they just hang up. And so this is this is going well. The FBI they do start they have a loudspeaker system set up around the compound. They do start broadcasting messages saying that if the Branch Davidians just give up, they will be treated fairly. Which to me says that they have given up trying to talk to David Koresh. They're trying to talk directly to the people inside. Mm-hmm. It's at this point that we get a new player in the story, a new character, if you will. <laughs> he is apparently kind of a big deal in Texas lawyering. Maybe you've heard of him, Steph. Uh, his name is Dick DeGarren, and he is a hotshot Texas lawyer. Dick DeGarren and Jack Zimmerman, they are hired by David Koresh's mom to serve as David Koresh's lawyers in this situation. Um, for those of you who have listened to the Black Widow of Westlake episode, Celeste Beard, uh, that merry murderess was represented by Dick DeGarren. So there you go. He has shown up in the story of outlaws and scorned women before. He's a recurring character. I can't wait to see him again. Um, but here's where I had a question for you, because I saw an interview with Dick DeGarren where he says, Bonnie and I drove in my car to the command center. It was uh, guarded heavily. And I drove up to the guard and I said, I'm here to represent David Korsh and I wanted access to my client. And the guy said, we can't let you in here. They considered him a fugitive since they hadn't physically put him in a jail cell. Is that a thing? When I heard that he strolled up into the middle of this police action and was like, (laughs) I need to go talk to my guy. I thought, right. what the what? Like, <laughs> who are you? Because, um, he's dick to I mean, for real. Um, you do have a right to counsel when you are arrested. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, I don't know of any authority where somebody can, um, intervene in the middle of that mm-hmm. effectuating the arrest. And so it's, mm-hmm. You know, and there's there is a police action, a standoff occurring following the moment the ATF tried to execute a search warrant and an arrest warrant right. on David Crash. So I was just surprised that, you know, th- that he did that. However, I feel like um, from the perspective of David Crash's mom, she must mm-hmm. have had some sense the longer this goes on at this level of tension the uh the cha- the more there's some chance that it's not going to end well and right. she's clearly trying to you know deliver some help or support like what would you do in such a situation right it's such a such a jarring note for for me to have his mother suddenly appear in the story because like I don't, I mean, like, if I was writing this, I would not suddenly remind everyone that our, that our villain was somebody's baby boy. Mm -hmm. And so she went and got the biggest, baddest lawyer she could get her hands on, who, um, was not opposed to the level of spotlight that was involved with this particular case, because this shit is all over TV. Well, and I found a very interesting note. So I know you saw that, um, Mm -hmm. the, the interview with Dick DeGarren. I found in the interim report to the deputy attorney general, by the oh. special counsel that was uh, that was set up to investigate the all of the government actions, and mm-hmm. in the middle of its report in their um, section on the facts at paragraph thirty eight, he says, "Moreover, 
the negotiators took the unprecedented step of permitting criminal defense lawyers to enter the complex on several occasions to meet with Koresh Mm -hmm. and Schneider, even though Mm -hmm. the crime scene was unsecured. So my jaw dropped on the page. I I did not know that that was a thing. Uh, Apparently Mm -hmm. it did. And I think it just shows that the focus was so singularly on trying to end this thing get the children out get the followers out and you know apprehend these guys without further um you know firefights and violence Mm -hmm. that is now that you put it that way uh describing it as an unsecured crime scene and the criminal in question is still on the scene uh it is unprecedented in my mind i can't imagine cops going wait 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 before we start picking up evidence or anything, let's get his lawyer in there. Yeah, let's let them take let's a look at him. talk to his lawyer. Well, okay, so that on, on that, like, I was looking at it from the perspective of, of course he needs a lawyer. <laughs> like, who, who, who in the state of Texas needed a lawyer more in that moment than the guy who had 80-some people's lives in his hands and a few hundred heavily armed FBI agents surrounding him? Mm-hmm. Like, somebody needs to step in and the negotiator clearly isn't doing it. And like, blah, 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 blah. Maybe somebody besides David should be handling the negotiations, et cetera. So, but from that perspective, from the, from the law mm-hmm. perspective, yeah. Yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> well, and maybe that's a that's a, that's desperation. And think about it too. Like you're, you know, they they have this perimeter around the compound, and they mm-hmm. are trying to, you know, contain whatever is happening. And then you're right. just They're trying allow... to keep people from sneaking on because that happened. Oh yeah, there was a there were fight. branch division members who were off the property at the time everything went down. They broke through the perimeter line and snuck back on. And there was, I think, at least one that got into a firefight and mm-hmm. was killed because he was trying he was killed to in the process sneak into the compound. So right, they are in, not out. They in. <laughs> they're in the middle of this very you know dire difficult entrenched situation and so i think it just spoke to the nature of the potentialities that were at stake Mm -hmm. and they were like okay i mean if this guy is going to take it upon himself to go in and meet with this potential new client you know (laughs) um i think because think about too what if something happens to the lawyer like now Right. Look at that. The whole situation. What if he takes the lawyer inside and now he's got another hostage? Yes. Like, do we just add to it? And so oh. unprecedented and, you know, mm-hmm. what a difficult call. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. they must have thought there is some hope that this guy and his magical right. advocacy skills could bring mm-hmm. something to the table and break through in a way delivering a message from mom right. that nothing else mm-hmm. would is my yeah absolutely completely speculative like yeah speculating look from but like you know the trees yeah that's all we can do you know 30 years later as we armchair quarterback this entire situation um one point from the dick daguerre interview that i found really impactful was he was describing walking up to the door the first time and has footsteps crunched not on rocks but on the thousands and thousands of of spent bullet casings, casings that were wow. still on the ground. And he wasn't allowed to actually go up and talk to David Koresh until March 29th. They had been there for a month. Yeah. Like, obviously, nobody had been out front to sweep up the bullet casings because nobody had been allowed outside. But it still struck me as 
kind of poetically awful that these bullet casings are still there. Yeah. Because nobody's cleaned it up because this moment is frozen in time. And it highlights, I think, the the what was really, you know, on everybody's mind. Like mm-hmm. everybody was just some moments away from a firefight. And we know yeah. that both sides are heavily armed. Mm-hmm. And so the FBI is like, let's let's bring the temperature down and mm-hmm. just come out. Just come out. Right. And like this whole situation is not something that could happen now because this is 93. There's no cell phones. Right. Cell phones are not in wide use. Like maybe like a car phone or like a brick phone, you know, but certainly there's not. And there's not a 24 hour news cycle yet. Not really. So most of this whole thing, because it's ongoing, most of it is being, you know, observed from afar. And, you know, we're being updated nightly every night. I remember this from being a teenager in Texas at the time. Every night, the nightly news was our top story tonight is the ongoing standoff in Waco. Good evening, friends. It has been over 36 hours now since federal agents first confronted a heavily armed religious cult near Waco. They were met by a hail of gunfire, killing four of the agents and wounding over a dozen others. Tonight, additional agents have arrived on that scene, many of them in combat gear. Like, that was all anybody could talk about. That was, you know, that was was everything. Because this was so compelling, like, national attention on Texas. So... Um, looking at the next chunk of time, taking us into the end of the month of March, several times over these weeks, David Koresh says he'll come out and then he sends out some adult Branch Davidians and he does not come out and they call him and they're like, what, what the hell, dude, you said you were going to come out. And he says, my God told me to wait Mm -hmm. every time my God told me to wait. And so uh, the FBI tactical team starts escalating their noise warfare against the <laughs> against the branch davidians they put up these huge speakers and they start blaring tibetan chants yep uh at the compound and like ufo noises and christmas music and the sound of chickens being slaughtered it's just all hours of the day and night just this constant relentless cacophony of noise again like this is some this this is like noise waterboarding everybody <laughs> Like, the point is to be unsettling Mm -hmm. and miserable. And again, this level of misery, they didn't know who they were messing with. These are people who loved camping out and living in plywood boxes with their Messiah. Their whole philosophy is that they are being beset and bedeviled uh, by the the forces of evil. So this really just sort of plays into that. Did you have anything on on their... I, on their harassment of the Branch Davidians. I think it was right. I, I kind of um always see those tactics and um I haven't read enough about those tactics, but um I see them as being aimed at causing fatigue. Just to make you mm-hmm, tired mm-hmm. in an already very stressful situation where you are hanging on to your inner calm with everything you've got and it's one more you know, a blaring siren to make it, mm-hmm. you know, impossible for you to maintain your focus and maintain your resolve. I think it's just, mm-hmm. you know, and you're right, like, um, you know, it's just a loud, um, bright, and you mm-hmm. get no rest. So you are as tired as we yeah. are. 
and hopefully that they will help you break. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're just going to wear you out and wear you down. Uh, and so they got the lights, they got the music, they would um, fly helicopters real low and circle the buildings and shine spotlights in and stuff like it just must have felt like the world was ending 24 yeah. seven for weeks and weeks on end. And if you're getting paranoid, wouldn't you think like, oh, now's when they're going to do it? Like, we're going to yeah. be distracted now. Like, oh, now there's a helicopter. So everybody be on guard. Now, now this is it. Yeah. And like, you can't, like the human body cannot maintain fight or flight for long. Like you get a, a, an adrenaline fatigue Absolutely. out of it. You can't, you can't live at that level of stress. And so I can only imagine how hard this was. Like, can you imagine being a mom in that situation and like trying to, trying to comfort your children and just, oh, Oh, I think it was a that's going on. significant concern on the side of law enforcement because they were on high alert this entire time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and it would also, yeah, it would absolutely be exhausting for them as well. But they can shift out. They can, you know, you could be on or off shift. Yeah, you could leave. No, the Branch of Indians didn't have anywhere to go. But again, David Koresh would say they're free to go anytime. But when you're free to go and your option is stay in your home or go outside to where the guys who are tormenting you with all of this and also have lots of guns are waiting, like, how is that even a choice? I mean, like, that's that's a rock and a hard place. I, I, I understand that they thought that, you know, the outside world was Babylon. But I mean, looking at mm-hmm. the the situation inside, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that right. my my welfare and my children's welfare mm-hmm. is better served on the inside right. of this powder keg than on the outside of it. Right. And like inside, it's not great either because like there were Branch Davidians who were killed during the initial raid. Yeah. And like those bodies haven't been collected yet. There are human corpses somewhere on the compound. Um, On Thursday, March 25th, the FBI issued an ultimatum. To David Koresh. They said, you need to release 10 to 20 people by 4 p.m. today, or we will take action against you. Some unspecified action. Um, and, uh, nobody, nobody came out at 4 p.m. 4 p.m. came and went and nobody walked out. So the FBI tactical team got in their, uh, their armored vehicles and started driving around on the property, um, crushing the Branch Davidians' cars, hauling away wreckage. They specifically mentioned several times crushing go-karts. So I guess the Branch Davidians had go-karts on the property, just destroying any of their more mobile pieces of property that were outside. They're like, you didn't come out, so now we're trashing your shit and clearing space at the front of the compound in a in a threatening manner, as though we're clearing the field so we can come across this at you. Uh, so that seems like that negotiation was super effective and going very well. Do you have anything else for the month of March during this 51-day standoff? Because we're about to get into April, and that's when shit gets real. Yeah. No, I um, I think you're you're covering it. I think they are they are holding out and David Koresh is Mm -hmm. continually making promises. And yet, you know, the um, negotiators are realizing he is waiting on this unspecified command from God. Yeah. And they, and they're they're like, how do you negotiate with God? 
<laughs> yeah, and <laughs> we don't have any leg to stand on here. They are definitely, I think, beginning to, um, you know, find themselves believing that he may not. His promises are going mm-hmm. to continue to be unfulfilled. And so right. I think that is wearing on these multiple teams of negotiators mm-hmm. that are creating yeah. this record and this log that mm-hmm. is probably starting to show a lot of repetitive material. Like, right. you know, we get this far um, and then we don't get any further. Yeah. It is, it is a two steps forward, two steps back situation the whole time. Paula Abdul was right. <laughs> Opposites <laughs> attract. Is that? <laughs> yes. That's where I went. Thank you uh, for going there with me, I, my friend. Um, so I think it's worth noting that it's somewhere during this process, I think it was during March, uh, somebody who knows more facts than I do would probably be able to find it out. Uh, Attorney General, General Janet Reno gets signed, sworn in. <laughs> she starts her job. In the middle of all this. That's right. Uh, and also uh, Bill Clinton is president. Mm-hmm. So there's he gets mentioned a lot. He's, he is being briefed constantly on this situation. But he also constantly, he kept telling uh, Janet Reno, uh, it's your call. This is, you know, you got this. So <laughs> good luck. Uh, because what a hot mess. Can you imagine starting your job as like, hi, so this is going on. <laughs> No pressure. May or may not be an actual apocalypse. That's right. You deal with that. Oh my god. And you're right. Like um, the situation has political dimensions, in mm-hmm. addition to every other dimension we're, you know, concerned with at the moment. So, all right. So we, we the 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 merry merry month of April comes to Waco, Texas. By now, there's been a lot of attention drawn to this incident. Um, and a lot of a particular kind of attention. Uh, so Ruby Ridge, we had mentioned before in previous episodes, Ruby Ridge happened not that long before this, where another group of off-the-grid, doomsday-prepping, uh, gun-toting people had run afoul of law enforcement, and it went super bad. And so here we are in another such incident. Now, the geography of Waco and Mount Carmel is very relevant. It's super flat up there. It's pancake flat. And there's a lot, especially in springtime, where there's a lot of weather shifting going on. Uh, there's a lot of just crazy wind that just blows across these plains all the time. And there is one hill, exactly one hill in this area, and it is about three miles away from Mount Carmel. And this hilltop has become sort of the unofficial, like, watch party uh, of this entire situation, because... Because everything is so flat and because the whole mess around Mount Carmel is so huge, you can sit on top of this hill three miles away. And if you've got good binoculars, you can watch everything that's going on because there's no, there's no streaming. There's no cell phones. There's no TikTok videos. There's, there's not even a 24 hour news cycle yet. So you've got people sitting up on this hilltop watching it and they are a special group. Uh, they are mostly pro-gun, anti-government protesters. They're there to bear witness to this government overreach on these um, these nice gun owners. They're there to watch the entire fiasco go down. So keep the fact that we are being observed in mind. So it's April and David Koresh tells the FBI that he will come out. Everyone will come out after Passover. Passover comes, Passover goes, nobody came out. So the FBI starts discussing their tear gas options. Tacticals like, we'll just gas them out, 
negotiators are like, um, um, uh, let's, you know, we're going to keep talking. Maybe you just, you, oh, we'll think about it. Uh, David Koresh starts sending letters. He sends a series of five letters to the FBI saying, oh, all kinds of things. Specifically things like, quote, the heavens are calling you to judgment. And the FBI interpreted these letters as being a little more than vaguely threatening. And uh, FBI analysts and experts, this team of experts that you were talking about earlier, they read these letters and determined that David Koresh is psychotic and will never leave this compound voluntarily. Okay, so the FBI starts finalizing their tear gas plans, and they submit them to Attorney General Janet Reno for approval. They do a lot of consulting with chemists and experts on what the possible effects of tear gas on children might be, mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of data That's right. available on that. Uh, nobody really seems to know, but they're optimistic and pretty sure that there would be no permanent injury. And they're so okay. Do you have anything on that? Yes. That is um, that is a significant subject in the um, the mm. the investigations that occur, occur after the fact, and there are multiple mm-hmm. rounds of of meetings with experts, of reports documenting what they think the um, that the non lethal option that is available to them is this tear gas option, mm-hmm. and they discuss how right. they would execute it. And what's really interesting is uh, there was even, I guess, a coordinated discussion with um, different, there was, I want to say, I don't know which military um, representative, but there were military personnel involved in some of the discussions. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, listened and responded to um, inquiries about like, hey, what do you think of this plan? And one general was said to say, we can't grade your paper. (laughs) Like, we're not. (laughs) But... But what was really interesting is the military experts said, so, like, they, so what, they would have... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We can't grade your paper, son, is how I imagine that right yeah. now. <laughs> right. Okay, but okay, they, sorry. I think, were approaching from the fact that the FBI was proposing this slow, mm-hmm. like, long approach to um, keep introducing tear gas over a period of time mm-hmm. to kind of um, push... The idea of, okay, we're going to use this one area and we'll evacuate. Mm -hmm. Well, the military was like, we would approach this differently. We would, we would use all the tear gas at once Mm -hmm. and then we would raid like to find the children and take out the leader that we believed would, you know, cause a potential murder suicide situation. Yeah. 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 And so. You know, we're talking and they were like, but this is not a military action. Mm -hmm. This is a law enforcement action. So Mm -hmm. the idea was like, we can't really look at your objectives from our lens. Mm -hmm. And um, so when the FBI and the tear gas plan was being developed and Janet Reno was looking into it, Mm -hmm. apparently she asked a lot of times, like what the toxicology would be, you know, what the effects would be of the tear gas. Because some of these children are babies yes they're they're not you know they're not tweens not all of them some of them are babies and interestingly enough they tried to game out where they thought Mm -hmm. the where they imagined this group would put the children right and it turns out they were not 
those speculations were not accurate. You know, because it seemed like in their mind, what would you do? You would go find a place that's the most secure and the safest Mm -hmm. and you would, you know, put the children there. Right. But it does not look like, you know, in retrospect, that's not. And that is... That is definitely sort of a a symptom of a greater issue, which is they were um, really banking on like parental instincts to keep these kids safe. And if these were folks that were operating on the kind of parental instincts that you could bank on for those kind of logistics, they would have let their children out weeks ago. Right. They would have left. Yeah. Um, And I guess what the interesting thing, too, with this plan in the, um, the investigative report, they discussed that. You know, it wasn't feasible for them to cut the water off to the compound. Right. Because that would be one way to make things so uncomfortable. You have to, mm-hmm. you know, you might have to give. We don't do that on purpose in Texas. We just let natural disasters do that. <laughs> hey, um, the other thing is, <laughs> are we talking about our winter storm? No. Is that a little yes, throwback? Absolutely. So um, anyway, go on. Sorry. No, apparently there was discussion about like, uh, with regard to the children, you know, there were there gas masks for children, and right. you know what what would the availability Are, be? Does anybody um, make gas masks for children? Right, like, and so they even they were thing? like, and um, the other other questions they had were like, okay, what what would be the uh, you know period of time and the logistics of getting them to the right medical facilities? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say there was a, a there was a significant process mm-hmm. um consultations with toxicology pediatricians right. psychiatrists like in determining that this was the best option under the circumstances right but that's also because that you know in looking backward we're looking at that option because that's the option that was presented mm-hmm. you know i don't know what the better mm-hmm. option would have been i don't know like what, what other options were on the table that Massive amounts of tear gas was where you landed. Right. Like what, what got rejected? And so, well, and interestingly then too, the way they decided to do it, like they Mm -hmm. did not just blow all the, the tear gas in at once. Mm -hmm. They decided to put it in certain locations and slowly reintroduce it. And so, you know, um, yeah, maybe this was the, the, the best of the available options that Mm -hmm. was non-lethal, that was not, uh, I guess it would not escalate the situation as much as another mm-hmm. option. But right. again, what a situation. We, we, we will see here in a second how all that played out. Um, so as April is winding on, every single phone call between David Koresh and the negotiator is wall-to-wall Bible babble now. No productive negotiations are happening. Everything has officially stalled. David Koresh does meet with Dick DeGaron and tells his lawyer, all right, look, God said that I can give myself up and I can come out. But first, God says that I need to write my final manuscript explaining the seven seals of the book of Revelations. So I'm going to write this. It's going to take me two days per seal. So do the math. We've got 14 days. That's two weeks. And so Dick DeGaron is like, hey, FBI, uh, this, this is, this is what's happening. This is the message that my client is delivering. And, uh, Dick DeGaron did have his doubts at that point that this was ever going to happen because this seemed like his most elaborate stall tactic yet. 
but all right. Um, the FBI firmly confirms at this point that there's definitely a year's worth of rations and water on the compound. They are 100% convinced that there is no hope at this point of any negotiations to get the Branch Davidians to come out. That's right. Do we have anything before we get to April 19th? Okay. So, uh, no, I did read, it's funny, the um, FBI was tracking the idea of whether or not he was um, making progress on his mm-hmm. manuscript on the seals. And oh, they yeah? were able to get confirmation from, um, I guess, his lieutenant that, mm-hmm. you know, Stephen Schneider, yeah, Stephen Schneider, that even though progress was being made, he hadn't actually seen any work product. And so that yeah. I think firmed up in the FBI's mind that there is no actual tangible work product in process. And this is just yet another promise that David Koresh fully intends to break. Yes. So, all right, we find ourselves bright and early on the morning of April 19th. Now, I found documentation that gave like minute by minute on some actions. I will go through these. If you have stuff, jump in. Okay. So, this is the breach. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, at 5.59 a.m. on April 19th, 1993, the FBI calls the negotiation line and lets them know you are about to get tear gassed. Yes. Over the loudspeakers outside, they inform everyone you are under arrest. You should come out. This is not an assault. Do not fire. If you fire, your fire will be returned. We are introducing non-lethal tear gas. Exit the compound now and follow instructions. I saw a quote from the lead FBI negotiator, Byron Sage, who said, quote, what we were trying to convey to them is, this is not intended to bring injury to you. But you need to understand that this is a nation of law, and we are now telling you that this siege is over and you are under arrest. End quote. So, waking them up at the crack of dawn, hey, we're going to tear gas you, you should come out. You don't want to get tear gassed, come out. And they gave them exactly two minutes to think about that, because at 6.02 a.m., an FBI combat engineering vehicle, which I googled it, it's a tank. It's a tank. Don't call it a CEV. Call it a combat engineering vehicle. That that bitch is a tank. Okay. <laughs> I have CEV no, in my notes. Nobody <laughs> would look at it and think, that's not a tank. It's got the tracks <laughs> on the sides. It's got a big, it's got a, instead of a cannon on the front, it's got a boom arm that it uses for inserting through windows and depositing tear gas mm-hmm. inside. But it's still a tank. <laughs> anyway, 6.02 a.m., an FBI tank moves in and starts inserting tear gas through the windows. 6.04 a.m., the Davidians start shooting at the FBI agents. Now, the FBI says they did not return fire. Mm-hmm, that's right. They, so they, they didn't shoot back. But they did start deploying something called a ferret round. Did you, did you encounter the notion of ferret rounds? I do. Now I need to figure out um, the next round of tear gas they initiated were ferret rounds. I did find that. So a uh, ferret round is apparently some kind of, it's a munition that is designed to break through barricades because the um, Branch Davidians had barricaded all the entrances to the building. Mm-hmm. So these were designed to like, I got the impression it was like a, and somebody, if, if you have a clarification on this, send us an email. Um, but it's like a compressed air pop okay, to bust up a barricade without causing an explosion. 
And if that air also happens to have tear gas, I think that might be like a twofer. And I think that's right because um, notes I had between like the at six twenty seven a.m. the the listening mm-hmm. devices intercepted mm-hmm. um, one of the Branch Davidians asking somebody else like, "Have we have we been gassed?" Like, and so um, it seems that there was a notion that some of the ferret rounds didn't penetrate in the complex right. enough. Mm-hmm. And there were some Davidians that were observed using gas mast. So right. it didn't have enough of effect. And so uh, they deployed mm-hmm. additional ferret rounds to try to increase right. the efficacy. Now, a thing to keep in mind is that the, the compound buildings are huge. The main central building is three stories tall. These are big. There's a gymnasium. There's a full cafeteria. This is a big building. So it would take an awful lot of gas to fill the whole thing. They're not like shooting into a little house. This is a large facility. So uh, let's see. Moving through the timeline, 604, they start shooting at the FBI agent. 631, the FBI has determined that the entire main building has been gassed. At some point with the tanks rolling over the grounds, the phone line to the inside of the compound was severed. So there is no further communication. They're not able to call in and say, do you, do you give up yet? Do you cry uncle? So if the Branch Davidians want to make any kind of communication that, okay, they've had enough, they're going to have to come out mm-hmm. and do that. And how scary is that? Um, I, then my next, my next note is at 7.30. Did anything else happen during the last half of the six o'clock hour? Is that where, um, I think? That's when the tank goes through. Okay. And so I think before that, didn't they establish a, like, there was a flag with a, a red cross on it to kind of give a point for, like, the, oh, the Davidians for exiting. if you wanted yes. to come out? Like, here is a, okay. like, rally point for you to come to, um, but people did not exit. Right. So 7.30 a.m. This is a famous image. It is definitely something I remember seeing firsthand on the news as a kid. A tank busted through the front wall of the main building. Just drove right through it. To, in an attempt to, I believe, insert gas deeper in the building. I found notes that that was not part of the plan. Okay. That the, that the, the negotiators wanted to hold on to the idea of actually breaching the structure of the building as something that would be done if the Davidians didn't come out within like 48 hours. Okay. Yes. Gassed. Okay. Yeah. The plan had, uh, the plan that was initially approved. You're right. Mm-hmm. It, um, allowed for, systematic um, systematic dismantling mm-hmm. of the complex only after 48 hours. Right. But so this is uh, not after 48 hours. This is after an hour and a half. So somebody jumped the gun uh, and the front wall of the main building has been breached. And like, okay, I know I have not been the most glowing uh, supporter of this entire strategy up to this point, but like, come on. On the one hand, yes, this standoff needed to end, if only to get the children out. Like, this this was long and traumatizing and damaging to everyone involved, particularly, particularly the children. On the other hand, maybe ramming a tank into a building that, to the best of your knowledge, is full of dozens of innocent civilians many of whom are children whose locations you do not know in the building is not the 
best course of action. But that's just my opinion. No, I do know. That's not even the official opinion of Outlaws and Scorned Women. That's just the official opinion of me, (laughs) Stephanie, the not lawyer. But I I firmly disagree with the tank breaking through the door. The door, the wall. I don't... I mean, I think it's hard to say in the moment what the operational like contingencies were and right. what what happened just then. But I do know that they did have the technology they were using, I don't know, heat sensing. Like so oh, okay. there would be some sense and they had they had surveillance. There were I mean of the 700 law enforcement personnel that were on that side at various points. I have to imagine a lot of people were doing a lot of things to mm. to gather intelligence as to where people you know somewhat were or at least where okay. they weren't in particular moments um and there might there may have been some you know adjustment because well we're in it now mm-hmm. you know who knows what the who made the call but you know right. looking backward i mean it there were there were conversations of the davidians that they found out kind of foretold some of what would happen um yeah and so yeah it's hard for me to know what the right answer is you want to get those kids out and you wanted Mm -hmm. to you know you wanted to preserve life and this Mm -hmm. whole thing was a hot mess that you walked into i don't so so maybe there was no other option than to stomp through the front wall like a militarized Kool-Aid man. Uh, <laughs> maybe. And, uh, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not saying. And rescue the children. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, you know, we can, we can armchair quarterback this from the distance that we're at all we want. Or, uh, and I will observe me doing it. <laughs> but, but it happened. Um, and so they poured more and more gas into this building. And again, the wind sweeping over the planes here, over the compound, kept blowing the gas away. Even the stuff that was inside the building. You just opened some windows and apparently it aired out really quickly. Um, I found reports that up to 400 canisters of tear gas were used mm-hmm. in this whole situation and like a 100 ferret rounds. And still, nobody came out. I think some of the Davidians even like praised the good wind, you know, the, <laughs> right. the good wind like for, was... for taking care of that. Oh, and right. so, yeah, no, th- thank you. Thank you for the divine intervention in the wind. Um, that's ironic for what's going to happen here a little later in the morning. So um, my next timestamp is 930 a.m. Do you okay. have anything else? I'm, I'm flipping back and forth. Um, I know there's so much. <laughs> oh my God, there's so many reports. There is such a massive public Good, record of this event. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about sunshine after the fact being the best disinfectant, you have it in this case. Yeah, absolutely. We don't stop talking. We're talking about it now. <laughs> like everybody has looked on it with official eyes and heads rolled and pounds of flesh were extracted. Uh, hither, thither, and yawn over this situation. Okay. So, 9.30 a.m., another tank breaches the back of the building. Uh, this time, the, it is presumably to create more routes for the Branch Davidians to escape. I think they were thinking, maybe nobody came out because they can't get to an exit, so let's make another one. So they just made another door at the back of the building, which, again, not the most welcoming exit route, but okay. And then uh, I have 11.45 at this point, there's just constant bombardment of tear gas, 
the main building has been breached twice by tanks at this point. Uh, nobody has left the building. Everybody's still inside as of 11.45 a.m. Do you yeah, have so um, when I said cool. heat imaging, I don't know what. I'm not. I don't play the video games. It is um, a forward-looking infrared thermal imaging system. My bad. Oh, hot so shit. There nice. were surveillance aircraft that were, you know, getting images from which... That were keeping track of where people were. Some of the, the okay. information. Okay. It seems slightly less reckless now. And so um, that video of the early morning activity, um, some of it was... Um, they had difficulty because of the cloud cover. Oh, okay. And so once it lifted, the images were more clear. And so that drove some of the um, decision making. Hmm. Um, the other thing is there were concerns that when the, the tanks were making and were breaching the property, there were concerns about where there might be snipers on the Davidian side Ooh. of the complex. Because okay. they were at all okay. times aware of the caliber of weapons and the massive pile of weapons the Davidians had. Mm -hmm. And so when they were looking at entry into the complex and the idea of creating routes of escape, it did not escape their attention that there could be crossfire. So given that, I suppose if you have, if you have to start knocking down walls uh, or, or breaching uh, entrances to give people a route of escape, the only safe way to do that for your law enforcement personnel is with a tank. And maybe so, because... Knowing how heavily armed the people inside are, and the fact that they have already shown that they are going to shoot at you. Right. Because they're doing that. And that Okay, okay, happens. okay. Maybe I'm coming around a little bit. Uh, mistakes were made on both sides. <clears throat> 11.45 a.m. on April 19th, the rear wall of the building collapses. 12.07 p.m., the fires start. Right. Three different fires at different points around the compound started simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Now, both sides say that the other side started the fires. The Branch Davidians say that the, the fires were started by, because of the collapse of the building, exposed wiring interacting with the tear gas. So it's the FBI's fault that these fires started. The FBI says that they have evidence that the Branch Davidians totally poured gasoline all over the place and set their camp compound on fire. One of these stories has a little more backing it up than uh, the other. Yes. Do you have anything on oh. the starting of the fires? Oh, so much. Yes. Oh, do tell. So this this particular aspect of the end of the, the Waco siege and, you know, mm -hmm. um, standoff was... Um, in particular, fodder for so many conspiracy theories. And there right. were there were filmmakers that were putting out reports. There were conflicting, you know, um, information that was being disseminated, suggesting that the government started this fire and pinned mm -hmm. these women and children in. And um, mm -hmm. this was heavily investigated. Right. And so... Um, there were, remember, you brought, um, brought up the listening devices. Well, there were intercepts yeah. picked, picking up conversations at the complex that seemed to indicate or corroborate mm -hmm. that Davidians were pouring fuel in the different locations. Oh, the unidentified mm -hmm. males talking were like, have you poured it yet? Did you pour it? Yes. In the hallway. Um, did you pour it right? 
We have to get the fuel on. David said we have to get the fuel on. Does he want it poured already? (sighs) We want the fuel. We want some here. There were other conversations Mm -hmm. that were like, I've already poured it or I've been pouring it or I've got some fuel coming around. And then there's one that said real quickly, you can order the fire. Yes. And then um, let's see, there are other conversations. No, we only light it first when they come in with the tank, right? Right as they're coming in. Right. So there are... Oh, so to indicate that maybe they were trying to coordinate the fire with the the incursion of the tank to make it look like the tank did. Or at least that is their response to the breach. And so Mm. there are discussions about where you put the cans. And so all of this is um, from the listening devices that corroborate what the forensic fire units find. And they determined Mm -hmm. that it looked like There was accelerant and liquid fuel Mm -hmm. spread. There were also um, autopsies where individuals had accelerant on their hands. And so Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of compelling evidence that the fires that were started simultaneously, which it would have been very surprising. Like it, it wasn't probable that from where the government agents were and how the breach was taking place, that the government started it. And then all of the evidence showed the opposite. Oh, my God. And yeah, if you are uh, so inclined to believe a conspiracy theory or to believe that the government is so organized and has such excruciating control over every situation that it becomes involved in that they could have arranged to set these fires, then you would hear the government's evidence and say, well, you just made that up. Of course, that's what you'd say. You orchestrated all of this so of course you fabricated the evidence too so like you can't win with conspiracy theories yes. is what i'm saying and it's and we've all had like a crash course of that for the past year so like y'all feel me on this you no that's win. right and um it's very interesting too that people at the time because ruby ridge had just happened um there was mm-hmm. an abundance mm-hmm. of distrust of the government that there were so many people that were completely willing to believe that under these circumstances that the government would do something mm. like that. So that that is very right. illustrative of some of the tensions that were already, yeah. prim, you know, present in society. Ugh, ugh. Um, so, yeah, the building's on fire. And it's not just on fire. It's in, on fire in mm-hmm. three places. And these wonderful winds that had been whipping through and cleared out all the tear gas also whipped these fires into a an inferno frenzy situation within minutes and mount carmel is in the middle of acreage there are no fire hydrants around this isn't a suburban street there's nowhere for them to hook up if anybody's going to fight this fire they got to haul the water in themselves so this fire burns unchecked in addition to the accelerant there was one of the conversations i i underlined it because i was like what One of the unidentified males said an area was secure and said, we should get more hay in here, which made me think that they wanted as well. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. wanted something to go up and fast. Yeah. Um, At 12.25 p.m., there are reports that gunshots can be heard from inside the compound. The FBI assumes the Branch Davidians are killing themselves or each other. And the other thought was that with the fire, ammunition was being... It was also setting off off ammunition. That's right, by the heat. Mm -hmm. But some of it was rhythmic. And so that's 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It wasn't mm-hmm. like pa 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 like like so, like a box of ammo caught on fire. It was that's systematic and and steady, like a like the pulling of a trigger. Um, at twelve forty one, firefighting efforts begin. Um, so that fire's been burning for over a half an hour now, and everyone. The FBI agents on the perimeter, the reporters outside the perimeter, the the people watching on the hillside, the people watching on the news at home, everyone is watching these fires just devour this compound. Some propane tanks tanks went up in just a, a, a mushroom cloud fireball, just boom, and just started devouring this building. And everybody who's watching, you're thinking, okay, any minute now they're going to come out. They got to come out, right? They're, they're going to come out. Don't lose control of this, David. Lead your people out, David. Be a messiah, not a destroyer. So there were a few people that exited. There were a few. And yeah, like nine total. That's right. And um, one of them, uh, Riddle. They was were her adults, name? though. Yes, I think it was um, Ruth Riddle. She mm-hmm. had jumped from uh, she had jumped from a roof and then re-entered. Well, um, one of the agents like ran in and rescued Riddle mm-hmm. against her will is what the report right. says. And then they questioned her immediately trying to find out where the children were in the complex. Oh, and she okay. refused to answer. Hmm. And so that was at, um, I think they said, Oh, 1216. Oh my God. And so as you know, it, you know, there were, there were precious minutes at that time. Mm hmm. And yeah, I mean, you've got seconds, you've got mm-hmm. seconds, she's got to tell them where the kids are, and she doesn't. Um, so yeah, in total, nine adult Branch Davidians escaped. Uh, they were running out through the holes created by the tanks and the walls or jumping off of the roofs of some of the side buildings. Um, but within hours, the entire enormous Branch Davidian compound is literally burnt to the ground. By the time the sun set on April 19th, 1993, 75 Branch Davidians were dead. 25 of them were children. In the autopsy examinations, it was discovered many of them died due to smoke inhalation. Several died due to gunshot wounds. Some were self-inflicted, some were not, uh, including Steve Schneider and David Koresh himself. David Koresh was found dead of a gunshot wound to the forehead, and Steve Schneider was found dead right next to him, from a gunshot wound to the roof of his mouth. We don't know exactly what happened in that room, but as neither of them had inhaled any smoke, it seemed to be apparent that Steve Schneider killed David Koresh and then himself before the flames could consume them. And thus ended the longest standoff with law enforcement in the history of the United States. Do we have anything else from the standoff? Um, any, any points that I missed? Any, anything that you found? Um, there was an interesting little... I definitely missed stuff because it's so much. There's so much. And I think so much of it was like in hindsight. Um, right. On April 16th, there were... Mm-hmm. Um, the Davidians displayed a sign outside a window that said the flames await Isaiah 13. <gasps> um, oh, what? Yeah. They did not. Yes. Um, Three days before they set fire to their own building, allegedly. That's right. They put a sign like that out. Um, and then on April 17th, Intercepts captured a conversation among Davidians um, 
concerning a plan to prevent fire trucks from reaching the complex. And somebody said, you're definitely right. I think all the time he knows it. Nobody comes in here. Bring the fire trucks and they can't even get near us. Exactly. The other person. Oh, my God. And so as the FBI was clearing the front of the complex of cars and obstructions that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, on April 18th, there was an intercept that picked up a conversation between Davidians in which Schneider said, you always wanted to be a charcoal briquet. And the other (gasps) responded, I know that there's nothing like a good fire. Oh, God. (laughs) And so this information I found in the investigation, the interim report to the um, Deputy Attorney General by the special counsel that was issued Mm -hmm. July of 2000. Oh, wow. And so that... So a full seven years later. And so I don't know. I think this was in the record of the things. But while people Mm -hmm. were gasping at the sight that they were seeing on the news Mm -hmm. and there was the swirl of the conflicting information you had davidians saying there's no way they would have killed themselves nobody would have done that they wouldn't have started the fire Mm -hmm. the government started the fire all of this misinformation all of this um conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory dark notions of what the government was doing had taken hold and it i think um by the time we get to the special counsel's investigation, they had so much information. Like, right. So, right. Well, and that's, that is, but that tracks though, right? So, of course, uh, the Branch Davidians who escaped alive would be able to, to spread their version of the story farther and faster than because the truth took longer to find. There's that old saying that uh, a lie can run around the world twice before the truth can get its pants on. Well, and, and like, you know, to, to what you were saying earlier about, you know, there being some disconnect between the different levels of the operation. And there were definitely mm-hmm. parts of these investigations where the government could have been more forthcoming. They could have, mm, they could yeah. have um, not held as much so close. And who knows what the the issues were, what the legal reasons were. Mm. But there were things that they weren't disclosing that just gave uh, credence to some of these like right. questions and skepticism. And you know, mm. so it did. It took a while for the slow gears of government to catch up oh with with what was going on. Which is why it's such a hot mess and why we're still talking about it in 2021. Um, so in let's in the aftermath, I have a very small bit. And then I imagine you have some legal ap- aftermath of this to go through. It's, it's just a smidge. Um, ultimately, in the rubble, in addition to the 75 people who died during that raid, they found the corpses of the people who had died in the ATF raid mm-hmm. uh, 51 days prior. Um, and they found 300 weapons on site, 46 of which were modified to be fully automatic, 800,000 rounds of ammunition, and several modified grenades. So that whole ATF raid that kicked off this entire situation would have definitely found actionable items. Oh, yes. And so you start to see maybe why the Branch Davidians and David Koresh reacted to the arrival of the ATF the way they did in the first place, because they were super guilty and they had evidence right there in the closet. This is not a situation where there was a lack of probable cause. 
No, no, there, no, 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 no. There was, you know, there was objectively verifiable um, investigative information that mm-hmm. would lead one to believe you are going to find the fruits of these criminal acts and these violations yeah. upon search of the property. So you're right yeah. about that. And it turns out they totally would have. Um, but we did have survivors of this incident and they had legal woes to follow. Uh, what do you got? What do you got for oh, me? What okay. happened? Well, I was going to. So, okay. Well, um, you know, I didn't uh, go deep into the trial because, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the um, the murder charges were mm-hmm. not the um, the eleven that were prosecuted for the the murder of the ATF agents for mm-hmm. conspiracy charges, um, and for you know their their involvement in the siege. They were acquitted of the murder charges, but several okay. received um, sentences for lesser charges. Like the okay. aiding and betting voluntary manslaughter in the death of the ATF agents, um, weapons possession charges. Um, and I believe one of the um, defendants had a much lower sentence or didn't serve time because she testified on behalf yeah, of the government. Yeah, she turned state's evidence on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the evidence, I think... Uh, in the eyes of the the prosecution and the government was that the killing of those agents was unjustified mm-hmm. and seven of the 11 individuals were convicted. Um, I did see, however, I believe there were uh, multiple appeals involved in these cases. And uh, I think a couple of the um, defendants had their, uh, their cases remanded back to the trial mm-hmm. court because of the jury charge. Oh, okay. It didn't specify that two particular defendants actually possessed the weapons. Oh, okay. To in order to support the charge. Mm-hmm. So, um I think we've talked about it before. It's really significant that the jury be given the um right questions to mm-hmm. to answer mm-hmm. whether the um the party is guilty or not guilty and it has to include all of the elements to support the crime. Mm-hmm. And if not, then that would be a grounds of appeal that what the evidence showed or what the jury found Mm -hmm. didn't support, you know, the sentence. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. The, Mm -hmm. uh, there was also a civil lawsuit. Mm -hmm. I think it was like $650 million lawsuit. against. (laughs) (laughs) And this was um, on behalf of those that died at the compound of the branch. And yes, the branch Davidians. And they alleged that it the government was um, a wrongdoer committed bad acts like okay. it, the allegations were pretty significant mm-hmm. that you know uh, they wrongfully caused the deaths of the Branch Davidian members and the suit was for six hundred and seventy five million dollars. Jeez, and it was years long, um, yeah. but ultimately the government prevailed. the okay. the jury, you know. The, the jury found that the um, the government was not liable, was not, mm-hmm. did not commit the wrongs that they were accused of. And um, I was going to also say, I looked into, holy moly, the investigations that followed the aftermath yeah. uh-huh. of this. And there were so many, um, there were Department of Justice internal investigations mm-hmm. 
There were um, congressional hearings. There were numerous reports. There were different yeah. subcommittees mm-hmm. that had hearings and investigations um, that lasted years. And finally, Janet Reno appointed a special counsel. Since last weekend, I have been working to identify a qualified and respected individual outside the Department of Justice to head a review into the events at Waco to ensure that the American public has confidence and faith in whatever that investigation reveals. The facts that we know now indicate that the FBI did not set that fire. That fire was set by David Koresh and the people in that building. It was a terrible tragedy that came on the heels of federal agents being killed, just murdered. We've got to put it in perspective, realizing that as we do, it is still vitally, critically important that we pursue every aspect of the investigation to ensure that the truth will out. And so um, I found this investigation was great because it had the benefit of everything that had happened prior, mm-hmm. you know, not just the litigation, not just the hearings and not just the prior investigations. It was able to take the sum of that. So that investigation lasted 10 months. Mm-hmm. There were 74 people staffed Oof. on it. Okay. Uh, at a cost of $12 million. Um, pennies. Make it happen. Um, they interviewed 849 witnesses. <laughs> oh, wow. They reviewed 2 million pages of documents mm-hmm. and thousands of pounds of physical evidence. Wow. And they were looking into the questions of whether the government caused the fire. Mm-hmm. They concluded the government did not cause the fire. There you go. They... Um, looked into um, the gunfire and determined the government did not direct gunfire at the Branch Davidian complex. There you go. Okay. The government did not improperly employ the armed forces of the United States. Good job. They assigned responsibility um, to David Koresh um, with regard to the shooting and killing of the four ATF agents and the wounding Mm -hmm. of 20 others. Mm -hmm. Um, They said David Koresh was the the individual who refused to exit the complex peacefully mm-hmm. um, despite extensive efforts of in- negotiation. David Koresh's people directed gunfire at the FBI agents who were inserting mm-hmm. tear gas into the complex. The Branch Davidians were the ones who spread the fuel through the main structure and ignited it in three places, causing of the fire, and that they killed some of their own people by gunfire, including at least five children. Oh, God, I didn't know that. And oh, well. oh, there's another terrible detail that I didn't want to share. So, um, yeah, yeah, we shy away from those details on this show because we're mommy pantses. Because, yep. we're, yeah, but um, I thought it was pretty amazing that 10 months of this investigation, like reviewing everything that had mm-hmm. been poured over before. And um, the reason this um, investigation was undertaken laid with whether or not the government committed just seriously criminal evil acts Mm -hmm. and that so many people believed that they had Mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, um, independent counsel was established to look over. Mm -hmm. And he, in his preface to this big report said, Hey, I had all of our investigators sign commitments of objectivity Mm -hmm. and, that the reason we are undertaking this is because 
the bad acts um, that were alleged are so horrible right. and so yeah. awful that they demand that we look mm-hmm. into them. That, you know, uh, people thought that agents of the government deliberately set fire to a building full of people, that full they children. pinned children yeah. Mm-hmm. into a burning building with gunfire or that, you know, oh we God. illegally employed the armed forces in these actions mm-hmm. and then lied about it. So they also right. undertook to determine, was there a cover-up? And mm-hmm. the the report concludes that the overwhelming evidence is that the government did not. Now, they didn't mm-hmm. look at whether the judgment um, that was exercised was good in every respect, because there's right. latitude for that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was really the idea of in a free society mm-hmm. where our government and citizen relationship is a situation in which we consent to be governed. Mm-hmm. And yes. the legitimacy of our government depends on that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, he spent time talking about the media in the name of balance gives equal treatment to both the outrageous and serious claims. And there were so many points I was like, this sounds familiar. And he talked about... I think we may have been singing this particular song for a hot minute. Absolutely. He was like, you know, people have a universal readiness to believe the government must have done something wrong. And, the, right. you know, I think in the respect of having a massive investigation and all points, you know, review of everything that mm-hmm. happened, this full autopsy... Um, that found no evidence of a government conspiracy was so necessary and important. Mm -hmm. And I think it alleviated some of my concerns because I grew up with people that were like, oh, Mm -hmm. what they did in Waco. Oh, but you know what they did. And Mm -hmm. pouring over it, there is such a massive public record. Anybody could get into it and read the minute by minute and the, the transcripts of the negotiations. I think it was like 215 hours of negotiations that took place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard strangely, to say. Strangely, none of the negotiators were converted to go follow <laughs> David Koresh. For all that preaching, it was the weirdest thing. That is interesting. Just impervious to it, really. Yeah. And I mean, I I will say, like, I agree with you that there were some, there were these instances where we look back and we say, was that, was that right? You know, um, mm-hmm. could they have done better? it definitely better? felt. It felt so because, you know, you're watching it at home and, you know, you're me, you're 13 and you're just like, what is happening? Yeah. And when you look at the fact that the Davidians were clearly planning for the days before the end, Mm -hmm. you know, they knew what that window was. Um, It's hard to imagine what could have averted that outcome if they were completely determined in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure anything could. Happen. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think they, the, the FBI did show tremendous restraint in the fact that they were seriously trying to utilize <laughs> their, their collective strengths to negotiate, mm-hmm. you know, um, and end in, in an unprecedented situation yes. where nobody, there was no playbook. They were having to write this as they went. And no, I didn't know no. what to do. And so, yeah, I think this is not, this is not the, the raid that we see nowadays that causes mm-hmm. us to um, 
become enraged and throw things at the television. Right. This is this isn't a no knock warrant into the the wrong woman's home while she's sleeping in her bed in the middle of the night. Right. Like this isn't that kind of situation. No, this is this was fifty one days of patient <sighs> negotiation and tactics against somebody who was absolutely legally in the wrong. Yeah, and um I do think, you know, when we think about law enforcement and the militarization of our police and the distrust mm-hmm. of government that people have nowadays, it's really important to analyze these situations and determine, you know, are we accounting for the rights and privileges of all of our citizens and, you know, mm-hmm. taking care to ensure that to the absolute extent possible that people survive their arrest. Right. You know, this was a, Absolutely. Totally different situation complicated by the innocent lives mm-hmm. that were right. sitting around the table with this um, cult leader who had no intention of letting his power base go. He was a self-described sinful messiah. He called himself the madman living in Waco. He knew what he was. He knew. So uh, Waco, this whole incident had a lasting impact on Texas on the nation. Uh, we already talked about how, you know, law enforcement reacted by, you know, there was an in-depth uh, analysis of what happened. I feel like law enforcement, we have seen a gradual, not so gradual, but dramatic increase in the militarization of our law enforcement, even outside of the federal level, just across uh, the country. And I don't know that it was, I don't, I'm not saying that Waco made that happen, but it's hard to ignore the impact of Waco. Um, the city of Waco is never going to live this down. Like, Waco is synonymous with just general batshittery There in is Texas. some serious mojo and, at work. But also, this incident was really like, ugh, it was really Texas just showing its ass on the international <laughs> stage. Like, hi, here's our homebrew crazy. I think. And here's how the how our homebrew crazy just plays out. <laughs> Observe. The Texas of it all. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, this was a such a massive and significant um, event. And I think it's one of, you know, national import because, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays we're dealing with um, different types of extremism and different yeah. types of, um, you know, behavior from groups of people with extremely strongly held beliefs. And some of that has its roots and, in this incident. Absolutely. And I will say... With regard to some of the analysis, it seems like they were um, the law enforcement and the experts and the consultants were very right to be so concerned with the prospect of mass suicide. Yeah, and because murder. that was clearly the plan. And just how do you navigate situations that are that perilous? Right. I mean, how and do then you negotiate you, with somebody's God? And they have families mm-hmm. involved. I mean, these were, you know, yeah. And this, you're right. It was on a home mm-hmm. turf. It was on somebody's home territory. And so it really, it's amazing. And I think you've noted this, that this conversation has been ongoing for yep. decades. And I don't know how much the ball has really moved in our understanding. The negotiation pace of that 51 days is the pace at which this entire conversation across our American psyche will continue. It is two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, a two steps back. Constant. The discourse, however, um, 
needs to be elevated. I think when we did the episode where we looked into what makes people susceptible to cults Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what makes us, um, you know, vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation. I think on both ends, the idea that you need a healthy amount of skepticism, Mm -hmm. you need um, to kind of find your, your grounding Mm -hmm. and your bearings and be willing to research things and always be willing to take ideas that are contrary to your own ideas that old, oh, what was that? There was a bumper sticker that was like, if you can't change your mind, how do you know you still have one? Oh, okay. <laughs> I like it. Um, but the idea being you should you should regularly inspect mm-hmm. and um, dissect your own beliefs and mm-hmm. how they um, affect you and your interaction with the world because um, it's, it's just a tragedy that at the core of this tragedy – so many people um, were stuck mm-hmm. between a rock and a hard place because of their strongly held right. beliefs. Exactly. That was, um, they were trapped in that compound by something that the, the FBI couldn't see by the invisible bonds of, of the cult think, and they couldn't have escaped it if they wanted to, because they didn't have the wherewithal to want to. Mm. Yeah. So there's a footnote on this entire story. Um, do you remember the people on the hill? Yes. Three miles away watching the whole raid go down. Well, a lot of those people sitting up there were, um, you know, part of militant groups, parts of white supremacist groups, and they saw this as their, uh, as their own sort of apocalyptic moment where this is where the government is finally coming for these people to take their guns and take their freedom. And, um, you know, especially with this happening so shortly after Ruby Ridge. So that was the environment that was sort of camped out on top of this hill. And there was one particular young man who was there sitting on the trunk of his car, selling bumper stickers, selling pro-gun bumper stickers, selling white supremacist bumper stickers to the crowd, having a little vendor moment. Like it was, uh, like it was a little festival up there. And that young man's name was Timothy McVeigh, yeah. who you may recall would then go on to exactly two years to the day later, on April 19th, 1995, he would commit the Oklahoma City bombing. That's right. And he cited Waco as part of the reason why. So in case you're wondering (laughs) if any of these stories have ripples that wibbledy-wobbledy out across all of, uh, you know, our history and have an impact... Here you go. I did. In fact, this moment went a long way towards radicalizing Timothy McVeigh. The tether in the American psyche connects between these events and <laughs> in, in powerful and sometimes horrible ways. Yup. Oh, and like, that's all super uplifting. <laughs> I'm so glad that we did this. And this is going to be, this is a really long episode. If you're still listening, thank you. Love you. I hope you did it in sessions and took a pee break. Like we have not done this whole time <laughs> because who, um, I'm really glad we did this. This is really, this story has kind of been like the sort of Damocles hanging over this podcast the whole time. And we've had people asking about it from day one. Oh no, it's been like 
Sisyphus. Yes. Like, trying this to the push this rock and just, up this hill forever. <laughs> just doing this last chapter was super daunting because, like, that it was it was just a lot of information. It was a lot. We got through it. We got through it, buddy. Virtual high five up top. Here we go. Hacha. There we go. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to some just good old fashioned like murder. How about you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> let's let, let's find ourselves a pom pom cheerleading mom. Or a- <laughs> Alright, thank y'all for listening. We do appreciate you. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, feelings, thoughts on your feelings, you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. We do legitimately love hearing from y'all, so please feel free. If you want to help us keep the lights on in exchange for some bonus content, we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash OSWpodyall. As always, neither of us are journalists or investigators, so we will be posting links to all of our sources in the show notes. And I think that's it. So y'all have a good one and we'll see you next time. <laughs>